You're listening to Catacomb Podcast, a twisted underground pathway from cynicism to solutions. But government has a different God-given responsibility. Government is never called upon to forgive. Government is never called upon to turn the other cheek. The responsibility of government, according to the Word of God, is to protect its citizens. And one reason and one way that government protects its citizens is by securing the borders. It is government's responsibilities to secure the borders. And let's just go ahead and say this and make it clear. Having secure borders is not anti-Christian, as some people would lead you to believe. Did you know that borders are God's idea? God doesn't mean for us to live all as one people and one nation, all under uh, the same auspice and without any borders around the world. That is not God's plan. Acts 17.26 says, it is God himself who established the boundaries, the borders in which people should live. That was God's idea. And it's government's responsibility to secure our border in order to protect us. Not only that, it is government's responsibility to punish evildoers. Romans 13 says, God has empowered the government, the military, to bring wrath against those who practice evil. You may not agree with everything that Donald Trump says, but Donald Trump was absolutely correct Thursday night when he said, it is time to start bombing the you-know-what out of ISIS. That is a biblical response. Now, I want to say this. I want to say this. Ladies and gentlemen, if we do not confront and defeat the evil of radical Islam, the evil of radical Islam is going to confront and defeat us. It is time for our government to step up and do whatever is necessary militarily to rid this world of the cancer called radical Islam. It is time for us to act. Welcome to Catacomb. <laughs> this is Josh and Jay. I'm here. And Jay, we are in our new studio. The Crown Heads Lounge. The Crown Heads Lounge in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. Um, although, kids, we don't recommend picking up any bad habits. It's not Christ-like, but we are staying awake. It's 2.15 in the morning, and we are enjoying nice cigars. And it's been a heavy week. I just felt like I needed to kick back. I mean, personally, it's been a heavy week, but I think for the world, it's been an extremely heavy week. I wonder if we'll look back on uh, November 13th, which was a Friday, Friday the 13th of 2015, I wonder how history will note that day. Does it just feel really significant to us? A lot of bad things happen in one day. We we really have only focused on one of them. But did you hear about the earthquake in Japan? 
you mean which earthquake in Japan recently? The, w- the one that was on Friday the 13th. No, I honestly I did not. Did hear. you hear did you hear about the hurricane that hit Mexico? Uh nope. Because people were so focused on Paris. On Paris. And then there was another terrorist attack in Beirut, yes, Lebanon. In Beirut. It got a little bit of press. Yeah, I just heard about it on the radio like in a clip it, a snippet. Yeah. I think there were 41 dead there. Oh, I think it was more than that. In Beirut. Oh, in Beirut, yeah. Yeah, in Beirut. I was talking about in Beirut, and um, I believe it was our friends ISIS. Our good buddies. Who um, attacked Beirut, which I believe is the stronghold of Hezbollah. I think you're right, yeah. So I guess now they're saying the Russian airliner was brought down by ISIS as well. Which actually killed far more people than Paris, but no one seems that concerned about the airplane. See, I missed that one. I didn't, I didn't hear that one. Oh, yeah. You know, there was a Russian airliner that exploded in midair. And now they're saying that it was ISIS. They, made, uh, they put an explosive in a drink can. Oh. And it was enough to bring down an entire airliner and killed way more people than even in Paris. But the Paris thing was extremely tragic and horrible. And I wish that I was like one of these modern news junkie guys and historians that could just explain how everything is. But the truth is, I'm a layman when it comes to that. And I don't understand all the ins and outs. But I know what pain and suffering looks like and I know what a horrific act is I think we can all agree that this thing was absolutely horrible well yeah it I mean yeah it's horrible but why do you think Josh that we when I say we like our circle Americans whatever people that we know in general care more about what happened in Paris I mean people were I was just reading, you know, Twitter and Facebook. People were reacting not entirely unlike what happened on 9-11 on, like, a lesser scale, but right. still, like, they felt like it hit them in a personal way. Sure. Well, I think part of it is the memory of 9-11. I mean, you have vivid memories of 9-11. I have very mem- vivid memories of 9-11. I do. So I think part of it is we're remembering where we were, what we were going through. It's really probably the first time on a sort of national and global scale that maybe we, our generation, experienced that type of fear. Um, and so I think some of it is coming back. Now, for me personally on Friday, I had very close friends, Joel and Amy Davis. Joel, who is the lead vocalist of Ascend the Hill, he was in Paris with his wife, I think attending a wedding. Hmm. And so knowing that they were there, it was very scary for me. Um, knowing that they were there, wondering if they were safe. Right. Did I tell you how I found out about it? How's that? I got a Facebook message from my cousin, Jean-Michel. He lives there with my with the rest of my family. Wow. So I was obviously... I mean, concerned. I mean, what were the places that got hit? There was a soccer stadium. There was a a rock club. 
I mean, my cafes. I was pretty sure my family wasn't in any of those places, but at the same time, um, I have family in Paris, so I mean, yeah, it's possible, you know. So I, I think also just hanging out with people in Nashville and talking about it this week a little bit. Um, you know, there was a band that was yeah. playing in the theater, which was the most gruesome. Right. Now, that's where the most of the carnage happened. Right. And I think that that environment, I know for you and me, we're Well, feel, that's our world. That's our world. We feel very familiar. We know exactly what that's like to I be mean, in a club. To be in the club, to play, to tour on stage. I mean, let's be real. If we were bands, in Paris, we probably would we have been, been at there. that show. Yeah. The Eagles of Death Metal. They're freaking rad. Yeah. And they actually were just in Nashville last month. I had tickets for the show. But I had to work, and so I forfeited my tickets. And, that was a mistake. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of shows in Nashville, so you got to kind of you can't That's just true. go out to shows every night. You got to work and make money. But I think like hearing about like the merch guy. Yeah. The merch guy died. I know yeah. if we've been on every tour, the merch guys are great people. They're a lot of fun. The yeah. The road crew guys are great. People. I was I was just at a show tonight and. Hanging with the crew, the merch dudes, and, you know, they're, yeah, they're always good-hearted dudes. And I promise that if you're a merch guy or you're a road guy and you're out on tour, the last thing in the world that you're thinking is that you're going to be murdered in the venue doing your job. Right. And they're also probably, like, if if you hang out with a lot of musicians and stuff, I mean, they're a little bit more concerned sometimes about... You know, their social media feeds or whether people will actually attend a show than like world politics or the drama of tribalism in the Middle East. All right. Well, let me just start with this. I want to be vulnerable for a moment. Okay. I remember exactly where I was when George Bush took a megaphone at 9-11 and said, the people who did this will hear us all. I remember I was sitting in a Kroger parking lot about to go in and get some milk for dinner. My wife had asked me to stop and pick up something. I was listening to the radio. And they cut live to it. So I heard it over the radio live. And I remember that moment. I was like, holy crap, yes. Let's kill them all. I mean, I totally remember being like, I want to murder every single person who has caused 9-11. I mean, this was only a few days after 9-11. It was so, that was such a dark time, scary. And the amount of people that died in 9-11 were unreal. And so, like, I had this really patriotic moment of, like, yes, I agree. Our president rules. We're going to kill them all. And I think I had a little bit of a flashback of that feeling, although I've grown a lot and I understand more than I did back then about the effects of war. But there was that sort of underlying rage or anger that you can't deny that evil exists and that that is a manifestation of evil. There are primal things that God put in us that make us want to defend our families and seek justice for the innocent. Um, and so the fact that I was seeing a lot of that type of feedback on the Internet did not necessarily surprise me because people were reacting out of fear and also out of their primal need for justice. When I listened to the words of this minister, 
the primal thing is like, yeah, but the reality thing, like the intellectual or just even being consciously awake thing, there were so many, first of all, there was so much scripture taken completely out of context. But also I'm like, is this the representation of Christ on earth? Is this what Christianity is all about? Right. I mean, basically, he was saying it is your government's responsibility to kill whoever stands in the government's way. Well, guess what? One day the church will stand in the government's way, and he'll probably be like, yeah, it's the government's responsibility to kill those who stand in the government's way. Yeah, exactly. That's So he referenced Romans 13, and I remember sitting in... Uh, a class on Romans and my professor E. Randolph Richards said now this is holy scripture it's in canon so we adhere to this but if Paul had written Romans five years later he probably wouldn't have said this because it was just before the the Neronian persecution of Christians which Paul got beheaded in eventually so it, the Roman government had not yet completely turned against Christians at this time. So, yeah, you're right. That's I think the whole point of Jesus establishing his kingdom on earth is that it is subversive. It overthrows governments. There's a pastor who wrote a book called Romans 13, and I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something about learning true authority and submission. Uh, his name is Chuck Baldwin, which I don't know a great deal about him, but I did, in fact, read this book because I thought it was a very interesting subject. But basically, he talks about how ministers all over the country take Romans 13 completely out of context. That it is not about us doing whatever our government tells us, but it's about saying there's a difference between who you are as a believer and what your government is. And there is a Christian responsibility to even stand up against your government when they are immoral. And it's like, wow, there's a whole other subject here. First of all, I'll say, I'm not like some crazy liberal who, like, hates their government. I actually love America, but I just love God more. Right. And I think, so, this Robert Jeffress, the, the pastor in Dallas, to me, that's the thing I think it makes me the most uneasy because he's creating this us and them. He says us and them a lot. And that's my question. Who is us? Who is them? Who who do you mean by us? Do you mean Americans? Do you mean Christians in the kingdom of God? Do you mean exclusively Christians in America? Are we saying that we have more in common with someone because they're American than we are because that they're Christian? And so it's where where do we draw our lines as followers of Jesus? I think that uh, in America, there's real confusion about where our allegiance should lie, and we're trying to be allegiant to two things simultaneously: America and Jesus. But inherently, they will be at odds. And I think, I mean, a guy like this, and I think a lot, a lot of American Christians 
struggle with this. I, I say they struggle. That would imply that they're thinking about it. I don't think they're thinking about it. I think the majority of American Christians just think that's how it is. Where is the outrage towards all the Christians being murdered in the Middle East right now? We have one of the highest rates, numbers of Christian martyrs than we have seen in hundreds of years right now. And there's no outrage about that. You don't see anybody saying, send in the ground troops. Bomb the heck out of them. They're not our tribe. That's the point. It's when we but say, they are our tribe. That, exactly. They're our kingdom tribe. But that's not the way most, most American Christians think of it. Because when they're drawing the lines between us and them, that's them. That's their problem. Because they're not us. You see, now if those were Americans, or not just Americans, Westerners, because we feel an affinity towards what happens in Paris because they're Western. They have similar culture, cultural values to us. I think like where I'm conflicted, and like I said on the primal level, there were some things I kind of agree with, or at least I hate to admit that I might agree. When I think about what Hitler did. Right. I feel that it was a good thing. I feel it was a good thing for America and for the Allies to end his reign. Well, I agree with that. What I didn't like about what this minister was saying is that it was completely about the American role. My thing is, make the argument that we're defending people's right to believe what they want to believe. See, one man's freedom can become another man's persecution. Yeah. And this is one of the struggles our country has dealt with is how do we allow people to have the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, and at what point does that freedom infringe upon other people's freedom? So I think like when you're murdering people, because of their religion, yeah, you might have violated their freedom. <laughs> <laughs> right. For a country to perpetuate itself, if, if America is going to continue to exist as a, as a sovereign state, it has to defend itself. It has to defend its borders. It has to uh, annihilate its enemies. That's what a country does. But the thing about this kingdom where Jesus is the king and he reigns, he defeats his enemies by making them his friends. He absorbs them into his kingdom. He turns his enemies into his friends by sacrificing his own life for their sake. So he protects the sovereignty of his kingdom through forgiveness, through love. And the fundamental mechanism of the kingdom of God is completely diametrically opposed, opposite of a sovereign state on earth. They, d they don't operate from the, from the same way of thinking. So do you agree with me that part of the issue, part of the struggle, like first of all, he made a lot of comments about God ordaining boundaries, and he actually took the quote from the book of Acts where... Um, Paul was preaching about the 
monument or the statue or whatever to the unknown god. At Mars Hill in Athens. Exactly. So he was kind of making a statement that God knows what's happening with people on the earth. But this minister is like, this means God wants boundaries. It's like so out of context. It's good to read the verses before and after any scripture (laughs) that you're trying to figure out what it means. So I thought that was just a totally lame point. And the quotes on Romans 13 were taken out of context as well. ISIS wants America to come and send ground troops. Oh, they want a war. I mean, that's what they want. They want a war. And so, like, a lot of this activity of terrorism is provoking us, provoking us to come. Yeah, that's what they're doing. They they want a war, and we're basically at the point where we're going to give it to them. I think the idea of, like, loving ISIS into freedom probably isn't going to work. Well, okay, from a nationalistic standpoint, absolutely not. Um, but from a kingdom perspective, I mean, you hear... I've, I've read some different reports where former members of ISIS have had dreams about Jesus and converted which is not, I, I completely believe that because in the times that I've spent in that part of the world, that is how the Lord works in people. You know, he gives them supernatural visions and dreams and then they surrender their life to follow him. And so, you know, that's believable. I, I believe God is working in ISIS or in, you know, Syria and Iraq and that part of the world to bring people to know him. And in fact, the, the point that I think Paul's alluding to in Acts 17 is that God has allowed this to happen so that people would see their need for him and repent and turn to him. That's the whole message he's given to the people in Athens. And he even references, uh, he doesn't say it explicitly, but, you know, the Tower of Babel where there was only one nation and one language and everyone banded together. And then God split everyone into different nations and stuff because they didn't acknowledge him. So he created these divisions so that humanity would begin to see what it's like without him so that they would realize their great need for him. One thing I want to talk about is the refugee situation. Right. I have seen so much nonsense about it. And again, this goes back to primal. Yes, my primal instinct says, hey, if there's a bunch of terrorists coming in, I don't want them. And I don't think anybody wants them, but... I also just do not believe that these refugees are all terrorists. And there is becoming a major world crisis of refugees coming out of the Middle East. Right. What do you think the Christian response is? Well, that this is one of those points, like I referenced earlier, where your allegiance to Jesus and your allegiance to America may be in conflict because... Your allegiance to America may say, no, we have to protect our borders. We have to protect our national interests. We have to protect our safety. But as Christians, I mean, hospitality is one of the most important things. That I mean, th- That's pretty clear throughout the scriptures. From the beginning to the end, hospitality, welcoming people in, is really close to the heart of God. That's how he wants his people to behave and act, is to welcome people in, to share your resources, to love each other. Um, people who have been abandoned to uh, give them a home 
these kind of things. And refugees specifically are referenced in scriptures. Treat them as your own countrymen, God says. Treat the people in Jerusalem who are not from Jerusalem, treat them as though they are. That, that's something that God wants. And so I, that's in conflict with our national interests. So which, which do you choose as a, as a Christian who's also an American? Which, which path do you, do you choose there? Sure, and I also think that, you know, granted we can make the argument that the attacks were, what, seven dudes? Right. So it doesn't take much to do a terrorist attack. And, I mean, 9-11 completely happened, and none of those people came in as refugees. Right. So my gut feeling is that if someone is wanting to come in your country and cause harm— they're going to come. Right. They're coming anyways. They'll come across the border. I mean, how do people get into our country all the time anyways? There are three different conversations I found myself in from people that I consider thoughtful and they're believers, and yet they were taking the side of, we can't let these refugees in the country. And so I was having these dialogues and stuff, and then it got personal, you know, and it was like, well, are you going to let them into your home? And I'm like, yeah yeah i would and so i immediately went and looked up how i could do that and i found an organization called world relief that has uh, an office here in nashville and so i left a voicemail with one of their directors and within 30 minutes she called me back and i said i have no idea how this whole thing works i just found out about you guys i just have a lot of questions and so she talked with me and she gave me a lot of information that i think from what I saw on social media, most people were completely unaware of. One of the things I found out was that we accept over 70,000 refugees per year in America. 70,000. This is worldwide, obviously, not just from the Middle East. Hmm. But we're already doing that every year. Since 9-11, it's increased exponentially. And so the last several years, we've averaged about 70,000 that we're already bringing into our country. The second thing I found out is that it is the most difficult way to immigrate to the United States. It's a two to three year process. You have like five times the background checks you would as from normal immigration. So what this lady told me was that if you were a terrorist and you wanted to get into America, literally the most difficult way would be to come as a refugee. It is the most unlikely way for you to enter the country. It's the hardest, most difficult way. And it's the most likely that you'll be caught and identified as a terrorist. And I, I think that most of the fears are, they're really kind of irrational when you look at the process and you start to understand. And granted, I had no concept of this until two days ago when I made this phone call and found out about it. But on the other hand, what that has done for me personally is it's created an awareness of the existence of refugees that are already here, people who need a home, people who are trying to acclimate to a completely new culture because for whatever reason, they've been rejected or abandoned by their own people. Sure. I, um, I want to share something with you. I'm just going to read to you a Facebook post that a friend here in Nashville who spent time in the Middle East working uh, wrote and I thought it was very uh, profound I won't mention her name just because I didn't ask for permission but it is on Facebook so that uh, her friends can see it but it says 
I remember being in my room on 9-11 and hearing my mom scream while watching the news. I ran out to watch the second tower get hit. I also remember the weeping Muslim woman from the city in Detroit and from Baghdad who talked about their fears that the world would hate Muslims because of this. They weren't wrong in many ways. It was on that day I decided to go and live in the Middle East someday and to see for myself. I was 16 then. I made it over 10 years later to the day. Now I could cry as I walk about all the or as I talk about all the incredible friends and family that I gained while living in Palestine and Jordan for those 3 years. They are some of the most incredible people that I've ever had the privilege of knowing and I am a pers- a better person for it. Including but not limited to several dozen Syrian refugees I was privileged to know as well. They have taught me what generosity and hospitality looks like in a way that I've never seen before. Dearest friends, I get the fear for safety of your family, but so do these people. That is why they are trying to flee to safety. I could tell you loads of stories that I have heard over coffee and tears, stories of husbands and sons lost, of babies being shot right in front of their families, of homes bombed, the stories are endless. The point is this, love is always a risk. And while I do like being alive and such, I would rather say that I risked everything to love when, sorry, it's a good one, to love when they say I held on too tightly and to loss it all anyways. Love is still worth love is still a worthy cause Mm, amen i read read that this morning and it was very very moving as it still is it's interesting you said that because one of my responses to someone was when he was talking about the risk i i simply said one thing in the comment in response i said love is always a risk and you think about that it if you're not willing to risk your own safety how who you ever love you, when you married your wife, you made a major risk. You were vulnerable. She, you made yourself, you put yourself in a position where she could rip you apart. Should she so, so choose, that could happen. That's what loving someone truly means is to put yourself at risk to them. That's what love looks like. And obviously Jesus in the ultimate act of love made himself vulnerable. He put himself at risk and of course we killed him. Those fears, you know, he, they were very founded. He died. He put himself at risk and he died. As a believer in Jesus, I will suffer to show love. That's all I know. Take up your cross. That's what taking up your cross means. I will suffer to show love. And at the end of the day, we have to be willing to lay down our lives to bring the kingdom into this earth. That's how it looks. 